Welcome to Cybersecurity Insights, the podcast for the CyberEd.io learning community. Our goal is to bring cybersecurity practitioners the latest and most relevant education and training to upskill and dive deeper into topics that matter in today's modern cybersecurity world. Good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the director at uh, CyberEd.io. This podcast today is featuring Brad Brooks, the uh, CEO of Census, who is a market leader in the attack surface management space. Prior to this assignment, Brad was CEO of One Login for five years or so, and then spent three years as a marketing head at DocuSign. And then prior to that, four years as the chief marketing officer at Juniper Networks. All in all, uh, Brad has over 25 years of experience in technology from consumer and business applications, which included nine years at Microsoft running both the consumer and commercial Windows product business unit, and two years at Enron as the general manager. So welcome, Brad. It's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Steve. Yeah. That introduction makes me sound old. Uh, <laughs> We're all getting old. <laughs> Tell our audience, if you would, uh, be, as we get going here, a bit about census and uh, any parts of your background that I may have missed or butchered. Yeah. <laughs> well, from uh, starting with census is, you know, it's a company that's been around since 2017 timeframe. Started out as a, a doctoral program graduate program by five individuals at the University of Michigan, of which uh, the founder that is uh, was the writer of the ZMapper code set. So if you uh, know the ZMapper tool around scanning engines, he was the original author of that. And it created the basis for the company. Um, and it's kind of gone from there uh, since that time frame. Uh, we do two things. We do what you uh, talked about, attack surface management. Uh, we also do uh, a set of data for threat hunting. So allowing customers as well as government agencies to go out there and find threats on the worldwide internet. Uh-huh. Well, that's great. You uh, you also published recently, uh, I think recently, a 2023 State of Security Leadership Report. What uh, what were the key takeaways from, from your point of view as, as part of your observations there? Yes, we did. We did publish that. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of things. Number one is, I think, with all of these types of surveys, is a lot of times the most interesting stuff can be found at the edges of the numbers. And one that stands out immediately when you look at the data is the first thing, which is 93%. So uh, let me back up a minute, is that this is companies that have employee sizes of 5,000 or more. So these are not necessarily small companies. And uh, there were several hundred, including in the survey from the United States, Western Europe, Australia, et cetera. And um, uh, getting back to the edges of the numbers is that 93% of the survey response uh, respondents said that there was a successful attack on their infrastructure in the last year. 93%. I mean, just think about that for a second. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the key word here is successful attack, uh, which means uh, somebody got in and got something uh, across all of these companies. Right. And these are not small companies. These are the ones that have staffs, have tools, et cetera. The other interesting thing about that is that you drill a little bit more into that number. 53% said that 
uh, a successful attack had happened two or more times in the last year. Um, so it just goes to the level, the pace, the sophistication of these attacks and what's happening to these customers right now. Well, you know, I, that raises the question that I wake up every day thinking about, which is, what are we going to do? Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I hate to put it that way, but, you know, I, and I'm not a pessimist, but boy, the weight of the opposition, if you will, is, uh, it feels like it increases every day. And, and uh, with, you know, what's, if you look at Move It and what went on with, is going on with Microsoft and Azure AD, uh, and it's just slate of vulnerabilities and they keep coming out of the woodwork every day, you know, and, you know, we're talking about the most widely used software product on the planet. It doesn't, it feels to me like, you know, no one cares. This is like a, to me, this is like a whole of government, whole of global government kind of a problem that needs to be addressed and it just isn't happening. So I, what, what do we do? Yeah. Well, I, I think, you hit on several things there. Number one is, uh, and let me bring it, I'll bring it all back around in the end to what do we do? But first off is you talk about the consistency or the the pace of these exploits, move it. We just, uh, we're working with our US government customers about identifying the federal agencies that were impacted by that. Um, we put out a report right after that happened of, uh, locating several thousand different instances of compromised move it installations across the uh, across the globe and the specific companies that were having it. To your point is that when one of these happens, it happens on a big scale. And yes, we've got a lot of legacy code out there that was written years and years and years ago uh, that and all code is written by human beings and therefore it's going to be have mistakes in it that eventually somebody's going to find. Um, and the I think the the first thing is to think about this is it is not going to be if this is a disease of the internet it is not a disease that is going to be cured it's a disease that's going to be managed and the question is like all of these things is how well uh, are you doing to manage it and what's your mindset in terms of going out there and managing it uh, and that's what you see also in the respondents of this survey that we did which is whether the leadership feels like they're equipped with the tools, they're equipped with the budget, they're equipped with the right people, that they're equipped with uh, the right mental uh, mindset is when you think about it is when you're under siege, again, kind of use the analogy of the disease is uh, when you're uh, trying to find a cure for it and get into a managed state is the mental state. Uh, is maybe the most important. And that goes to these organizations. They can't find the talent. Uh, they're constantly under attack. And it's really showing up um, in terms of their mental health as well. So getting to your question of how do we solve it? Uh, first and foremost is that you now we've got to come up with some more uh, common practices. It is only solved by a community. Uh, and it's all, only solved by us working together. And, you know, some of these uh, enforcement actions that have happened where we're going after CISOs because of how they've reported certain things, I don't think is actually helpful towards getting the information out. The first thing is you got to share this information. The community needs to share with one another. When an exploit is happening, when something new is happening, 
uh, where you, know, you can see these things happening, you got to spread the word. And so anything that detracts from that, either from a regulatory standpoint, enforcement standpoint, I don't think is helpful. The second thing is that you've got to have the right tools. And while we've placed a lot of emphasis in the last 10 years around putting access management controls and thinking about zero trust, um, that's really uh, more, again, treating the immediate symptoms rather than going after some of the more underlying causes. And that's where new tools, tools like what Census provides come in, which is giving more visibility. You can't fix, you can't go after, you can't remediate if you don't know that uh, it exists. If you don't know that a certain thing is in your environment because of shadow IT sprawl, or you don't know that an old marketing server that was held for an event three years ago is still connecting back into your environment and giving an exposure point. If you don't know that a Bitbucket that you just set up, set up in Amazon is configured wrong and is now exposing a bunch of PII information, you can't do anything about it. And so really this new wave of tools and investment that's coming in around the VC community, uh, around giving that visibility is absolutely critical for folks to, to be able to go after it. I also think that AI is gonna play both uh, a benefit and a curse here, is AI tools will be used by the bad guys uh, to immediately label and find uh, vulnerabilities quicker. Uh, they'll be able to go after these vulnerabilities faster. But taking these same types of tools and automating responses, at least at the basic levels, around an exposure. Hey, I see a server has got this particular type of issue. I automated taking it offline or putting access controls around it immediately before anything else happens and can do that in an automated way. I think that you know these uh, generative predictive models uh, are gonna be very helpful in terms of machine learning and helping assist these understaffed teams to go after these, these vulnerabilities. So, it comes down to number one is don't think of it as a problem that can ever be completely solved. Think about it as something that needs to be managed. Think about it from a mindset that uh, I can get on top of this with the right sets of tools. And then think about it is to, hey, do I have the visibility? Uh, do I see everything that's happening? Uh, do I have a good perimeter set up so I can see the attacks as they occur? And then have I optimized my infrastructure using automation tools, machine learning, others to automate the response as much as possible because things are just going to be coming at me so quickly? Yeah, I, all of that makes sense. I guess that my view is that we have a we have a CISO community that isn't as equipped as they might be uh, to deal with uh, the kind of changes that you just alluded to and we're talking about. And you know, generative AI is the obvious one. And uh, but every you know, we uh, so I've got you know 450 clients who are the top you know cybersecurity vendors in the space. Uh, and we're constantly doing survey work for them. And, you know, I we've got a huge network of CISOs that we communicate with all the time. But every time you talk to them, you know, I always walk away thinking, well, why, do, you know, if you, if you know about company X and you know that that solves this problem, why haven't you implemented that? That you must have as a, well, you've been in this space a, a long time that must drive you crazy. I mean, if you can't figure out that you need, you know, attack service visibility, uh, I just, I, it's hard for me to even like 
make eye contact with somebody and saying, nah, I'm not really interested in that. It's like you and why is that? <laughs> how can you how can you not be interested? You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, I uh, I completely get it. And I guess I'm part of the gray hair, Steve, is that you either get frustrated with the human condition or you 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 understand it too uh, of what it means to be human and understand that sometimes you get overwhelmed and you could say, but hey, wait a second, you're supposed to be a professional, you're supposed to be the person in charge, you're supposed to be doing these basic activities. Um, but I think, again, it gets to, uh, like I said, some of the data points in the survey around mental health is that well over 70% of the respondents are uh, are either very or highly uh, concerned about the mental state of their teams as well as them individually. And people just do funky things under stress, right? Uh, it's just that condition. And there is no more stressful role uh, out there right now than the CISO role. I used to be a CMO and uh, the CMO uh, had the distinction of, as part of the executive leadership team, having the shortest tenure of any member of the, of the uh, executive leadership team. And CISOs still, for the most part, don't uh, rise to the level of executive leadership team in a lot of companies, but when they do, uh, their tenure is even less than the CMO now. And I, again, it goes to the stress of the job and just almost the impossibility. Uh, if you don't have visibility, you don't know what you're trying to defend against, yeah, shame on you. But at the same time is how do I get there? How do I find these tools? That's the that's the question that they're all asking. Yeah, of course. And then the Joe Sullivan verdict didn't, you know. That does not help. Yeah. You uh, alluded to that, right? It did, not only didn't help, but it hurt significantly, yeah. right? And I mean, I hope he wins in the appeal, but but it was a felt to me like a vindictive legal event that was staged by the FTC to for some purpose, and I don't know what it is, but somebody up there doesn't understand the you know the ramifications of. Well, it's going to stop best practices sharing. It's going to stop sharing uh, with the officials. It's going to stop sharing with <laughs> the enforcement agencies. It just does not help uh, to do right, that. Right, right. And then, and then if, you, if I offered you, you know, half a million bucks to go be the CISO at XYZ and told you that you 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 have personal liability or fiduciary, you actually have a fiduciary duty like a board member, uh, I'd be like, I mean, if I were the candidate i'd be like yeah i don't think so you know yeah i don't i don't need that personal risk in my life it's just not worth it based on uh the state of the condition i mean going to jail for company x for doing what you thought was the right thing and, and that's what i believe joe did uh maybe yeah it makes no sense to to me at all but uh yeah and you're motive you're using the wrong incentives and the wrong motivations obviously so uh, but 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 it is a reality, you know. So the you know I know a lot of folks, that, and I was a CISO for six years for one of the world's largest banks. And uh, back then, and that was like seven years ago, it was uh, much easier than today because things didn't move as fast, right? So there were, you know, uh, if a new technology sort of came over the horizon, it came very slowly. It, it, relatively speaking. And so today, you know, you've got, it changes every day. Uh, the threat landscape changes, the profiles change, the technology to both, you know, to defend and to discover and 
to get visibility. All of that changes. And so I, I don't know who, how you can possibly have time to, to do the job any longer. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, we try, I, we're in education. I run the education division here. And we, you know, we talk to companies all the time about, so like, why aren't you doing this? I don't have time to manage it. Yeah. Well, that's why we've got a managed services version, but, but, uh, but nonetheless, that's the answer all of the time. You know, who has time to do this? So it's, yeah. uh, it makes it makes it very, very tough. It makes it very tough. And, you know, we talked about the number of successful attacks in, in that data point a little bit earlier. And it, uh, the point about those successful attacks is, they are going to run into a monetary value and maybe rise to the level of materiality and, and therefore rise to the level of the board and a board decision. And the question is, is, well, is it material? The next thing is, do I disclose it? If I disclose it, do I have to disclose it to the SEC as well as the FTC and others? Or, or do I have to, uh, uh, do I want to keep it buried? And do I try to push it under that minimum threshold of, uh, of what's a material disclosure. And the CISOs are involved in these conversations now and they're being pulled into it. And to your point is, hey, do I want that job at any price? Is now I'm basically dealing with some of these matters at this level that uh, I haven't been trained before or uh, the compensation system to, to overcome that risk is just not there. And therefore I wanna be hands off. There's only so much that I wanna know. and. Uh, that's part of this problem that you talk about, Steve, which is, is sometimes you get frustrated with, hey, the tools are out there and if you're not even trying to engage with the tools and put them in place. But there's also the, shoot, do I want to know what I don't know? Because if I find out about it, do I do really have the capability uh, to uh, handle the response to it? And if I don't, does that put me at personal risk? And so it really is a, it is quite a conundrum. I feel for these CISOs, I really do. And the other thing, too, is let's face it, cybersecurity industry over the last 20 years does not also have the best track record. Is There's been a lot of snake oil that comes out through uh, through the years in terms of providing protections that really were not provable or didn't exist in the right way, or stuff that was sold too early that uh, really wasn't providing the level of protections that customers thought. And, and they got better over time, certainly. Uh, but wasn't quite there. And I think for all of these reasons is that, uh, you know, there's, if, if you're a CISO, you're cynical, uh, you're hypervigilant, you got a high IQ, you've got an understaffed team, uh, budgets are coming your way. That's the good thing. When the data continues to prove that out, the budgets aren't shrinking. Uh, but you also uh, really have to have a, uh, a mindset, again, I'll go back to that word, a mindset uh, that you can, and the confidence that you can go do this. Um, <laughs> it, it's almost one of those things where somebody really feels completely confident about doing this job these days that you've got to question whether they belong in the job because they're, they're probably yeah. not yeah. what's happening. <laughs> which, which part of this don't you understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly right. Exactly right. So as we're talking about CISOs, you know, you, you've been in marketing a long time and particularly in cybersecurity. What's your take on the current state of, um, of cybersecurity messaging? And I mean, from a vendor, vendor kind of point of view. And, and the question is kind of like, what do, what do you think CISOs want to hear and how do you get their attention from a, from a positioning messaging point of view? Yeah. I think, uh, first off is that. 
you know, this is my common gripe in general, but certainly in uh, cybersecurity is still too much of a focus on the features, speeds, and feeds conversation, which is X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. And the reality is, is that the CISO doesn't need X, Y, Z. What they need is they need it to do specifically what they're asking it. They need to do it in a way that's provable. Um, and they need to do it in a way that they can then share that outcome um, at the senior or board level. Um, and still not enough products do that. There's a lot of products that focus on the practitioners, the daily users, uh, which are fine. But then elevating the, hey, I stopped that attack or, hey, uh, gave that visibility and actually being able to prove that with the product and prove that in the messaging and actually explain that at a value level uh, rather than doing it faster, cheaper, smarter, et cetera, is that faster, cheaper, smarter will happen the next day, will happen the next day. That's kind of table stakes. But the messaging really needs to elevate to, hey, how do I give you some relief of that anxiety around the role? How do I build some of that confidence? But more importantly, how do I prove it to you? And how do I allow you to prove it to uh, your board, your CFO, et cetera, as you're going into those budget conversations of saying, this is why I need this product to do this. Um, and that's where, uh, again, I think a lot of our messaging, if you look across cybersecurity, does not uh, go to the value. Uh, it goes to the uh, the feature value proposition and, and maybe it's sometimes the economic value proposition, but it doesn't really go to the, the core value of what they're getting out of it. And at the end of the day is we've just spent 25 minutes talking about emotions and uh, the feelings that you get in these leadership positions. You get a product that can actually give you and message to you that you are uh, going to feel more confident. You're going to feel more qualified in your role because it is doing what it says it does and it proves it, you're going to have a winning product that uh, CISOs are going to keep calling up and asking you more about. And this is also a tight community is once they find a product that works, they're going to be sharing it with all their friends and it's going to move very quickly. Yeah, exactly. And then so I'm always amazed that <laughs> why, why is it that so many marketing folks don't kind of get that don't grok that. I mean, it, you know, because I mean, I don't know how it happens, but you look at the look at them. What I mean is, I don't know internally, you know, company X how that how that manifests itself exactly. But you look at the messaging that comes out of you know 80, 90 percent of the vendors. You're right; it's all features, speeds, and speeds, and got nothing to do with outcomes. You know. Um, I don't. You you ran both consumer and and commercial for for a pretty decent size product, yeah, Microsoft <laughs> product that we all know. Tell me, do you do you perceive there's a difference in marketing to one buyer versus uh, another buyer in in business versus uh, as a consumer product? Yeah, Steve, um, I do. Uh, I, I don't see that there's a difference, but I see that there's a difference in the type of marketers that go through that met methodology. I'm very intentional in my marketing teams. Um, and this has been uh, ever since I left Microsoft is running B2B marketing functions. I look to folks that have done consumer marketing. And the reason why is consumer marketers are much better at terms of 
defining their markets as around the individuals and talking to the people, which means you got to quickly get out of that speeds and feed conversation and talk more to the value of what they're going to get out of that product. They think about it in that way and they communicate it that way. Um, and therefore, those that uh, specifically have had some kind of background in consumer marketing, I find are much more effective when they come over into these B2B marketing roles, particularly in these technical marketing roles. Too often, you get a lot of uh, engineer crossovers coming into marketing, which is fine, but they're going to go to what they know and they're going to go to the speeds and feeds conversation. Getting yeah. this yeah. background, you know, how do you differentiate between Cheerios and Frosted Flakes? Uh, you're not doing it based on the grains <laughs> or or the field that the wheat came from or the the quality count of X, Y, or Z, what you're doing is, is you're going to a more visceral, more value, emotional-based conversation. Uh, and people that think that way uh, are very effective uh, in the technical B2B marketing space. And to your point, there's just not enough of them. <laughs> I mean, you're selling, it's kind of the D to H thing, right? I mean, you're selling to humans on yes. both in both of those equations, correct? I mean, that, as I keep reminding my organizations, entities don't buy products; people do, and you yeah, got to market right. and talk to the people and uh, make it worth their while. Make them understand the value to them, how they are going to get something out of it, and then the conversation changes and the trust level changes too, is because now they believe you get them, uh, that you understand actually what they're going through which is speeds and feeds conversation is never going to get you to. Yeah. Uh, and, and, but, but the amazing part to me is that, you know, we, we don't seem to know that as a, as an industry. Do you remember the Apple silhouette uh, ad campaign? That oh, I do. Yeah, one of the best, you know, most effective, I shouldn't say best, but most effective campaigns in, in history and Jobs' initial reaction was the one you just described. Hey, wait a minute, you, this doesn't say anything about the product. And of course the Chai Day team said, you're right, Steve. It, it says everything about how it makes you feel. Yeah, the guy behind that uh, was David Roman. Uh, was working at Apple at the time. He was a good friend of mine. Uh, oh, is it right? Yeah, well. Yeah. He, uh, they had that was uh, it's one of my all time favorites. It's such a great illustration of what we're talking about, you know. And and they they finally you know uh, capitulated and threw in the ten thousand songs in your pocket, which is also a fabulous tagline. And yeah. on, on they went to billions of dollars in sales over you know three month or six month period or something crazy like that. But uh, my last question, as I'm conscious of the time here, um, Brad, is uh, the I know your know, Risk IQ is a old client of ours, and we uh, know a lot of those people pretty well. And they had this kind of, you know, I'll call it uh, kind of an open source free collective that, that you know, I think you guys have. Um, something similar, you know, whatever you want to call it, crowdsourced uh, uh, attack uh, vulnerabilities forum or something. And I know they had like, a, I thought they had a million members or something at one point in time. And they used that as, you know, a free product for their client base, which seemed to me to make a lot of sense. You have a community program. Isn't it, is that similarly constructed like that or is that that's the purpose is it not 
Yes, it is. It is. And we do have a community. Um, it's got several tens of thousands of uh, members that are showed that we're not quite up to a million yet, but uh, we're definitely growing very fast. It's global in nature. And two things around that. Number one is they get free access to our data. They can come in, they can search, you know, they can use our search tools. We have a community forum where we can engage with those users to help them. Uh, we've got specifically an engagement uh, with universities around the world as well as and their research teams uh, to engage on uh, threat profiling, labeling of assets, identification of risk, et cetera. Um, but we use those all as feeds as well as that when the community sees something interesting, they see an anomaly, they see a command and control network that's under construction. They see some of these other things that are going on um, as they feed it back to us. Um, and then we can put that into our tooling and for the customers of our attack service management product, they immediately get the benefits of us recognizing uh, issues within the environment. Uh, one of the areas where that popped up uh, quickly was uh, how fast we could respond to the VMware hypervisor flaw that was at the beginning of this year is that we started recognizing a lot of these issues within the community and our research before it was actually highlighted as a zero-day exploit. And we could get that information out to our customer users based on this research that the community was finding about uh, some activity that we saw. So yeah, we've got this base, we've got this user community, we put it together and it's uh, it's it's a big part of, uh, of both background of the company starting out as a uh, as a college research project uh, but also of our feeling of, around engagement in the community is that you know we're getting some benefits out of our data and we're turning it into a commercial business but uh, the only way that we collectively get stronger is by sharing information what we see it and holding it back when we see major exploits or having our community identify some of these exploits and share them. Uh, we really want to encourage that uh, as part of our product development. It helps us, but it also helps the community at large and helps us share information much more quickly. Yeah, sure. And you end up with tens of thousands of product management team for, you know. Giving us feedback all the time. On, yeah, on, yeah. Do better, better data, better labeling, better understanding. Um, it really does help. Um, tremendously in terms of improving the quality of the product. Yeah, and to be fair, you know, you you're, you built yours from scratch. Risk IQ bought there, so that <laughs> that company had years uh, to to put together a million subscribers or whatever. No, we are we are building it one user at a time based on reputation and quality product. That's how, that's how we do it. There you go. There you go. Hey, look, it was uh, it was great meeting you and talking with you. We have mindshare on a lot of stuff here and. I'd like to do it again sometime, maybe a few months from now. And if you'd like to join me on air again, that would be great. Thanks, uh, Brad. Uh, it's uh, It was really enjoyable for me. Steve, I really enjoyed it as well. Look forward to it and happy to come back uh, next time around as well. Thank you. Great. Thank you. And, and thanks to our audience for hanging in with us for another episode of our podcast. And uh, until next time, I'm Steve King, your host, signing off. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Insights. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook or send us an email at social at cybered.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybered.io forward slash podcast.
Until next week, stay safe and secure, and we'll see you on the next episode of Cybersecurity Insights.